So at, at 7.51 a.m. on uh, Friday, January 12, 2007, in the middle of the morning rush hour in the D.C. subway, a man walked into the subway and found a spot that was acoustically perfect, kind of like this one, and he started playing. It was a spot he'd scoped out ahead of time. He took out his, his violin and began to play. His name was Joshua Bell. And he played a Stradivarius violin that was made during the golden period of violin making, 1713. Uh, the violin that he played on was worth $2.1 million. And he played one of the greatest masterpieces ever written for that instrument or any instrument for free in the D.C. subway. So Bell began performing uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's Chacon from his Partita Number no. 2. Uh, it was written in 1720, and Bell says that this work is not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but it's one of the greatest achievements of any human in history. It's a spiritually powerful piece, it's emotionally powerful, and structurally perfect. In the next 43 minutes, Bell played this piece and others, and 1,097 people passed by. How many do you think stopped to listen? Any guesses? So, one. Seven people slowed down enough to notice that there was a violinist playing. They looked that way. One person, an accountant, actually stopped and listened. The others mostly didn't even make eye contact with the musician in the corner. But before we get down on the Metro DC Metro commuters, to be fair, they probably didn't want to be late for work. They didn't know they were going to encounter this in the subway. And, well, our culture is a little bit obsessed with the bizarre, the ridiculous, the flashy. And this was certainly not that. Maybe all it would have taken for them to stop and notice would have been somebody like you or me walking alongside one of those commuters saying, hey, that, I've seen that guy before, that's Joshua. Or, hey, just stop and listen a minute. This is really something. I know if I'd been walking in there with my family, they would have all stopped. Even if they didn't want to, even if we were going to be late for something, I would have stopped them and said, stop. This is worthy of your attention. I guess that's what I want to do today. I just want to stop, get your attention to something that I think is remarkably beautiful. Something that I think will edify us, and maybe we can use it uh, for our students as well. Since the pandemic began, and really even before that, I've been a little bit obsessed with this beauty, um, particularly this beauty of Johann Sebastian Bach. It's been known as such for 300 years. And it's fallen out of fashion time and again, but it gets revived again because some great musician finds it and says, hold on. This is something special. Uh, there was a time when Mozart found it. Mozart went to the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, and the choir happened to have one of the uh, box motets, and they started playing it, uh, playing and singing it. And Mozart stopped. He stopped them all. He demanded a copy of every part. There was no score available. He laid them out on the floor, and he said, start again, I need to listen. And he listened, and he said, now this is something worthy of our attention.
And this is from Mozart. He thought everybody who was not in Mozart was crap. <laughs> so in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm, and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that, I, that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. He didn't mention Bach, but I'm pretty sure... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that when he says by word of mouth here, he also means through music. I think there are timeless scriptural truths that get passed from generation to generation through music. We get a glimpse at how the Church of Leipzig in 1700s viewed God. And when we listen to the music, we get a, a real reminder of that. And there are just certain things that when I hear Bach, I see God in a new way. Before I dive into why Bach is so great, um, I just want to say one thing, and uh, this is from a professor at Fordham University. He says, in Bach's age, painters, sculptors, and also musicians thought of their art as being akin to oratory, akin to speaking or speech. It was true both in Catholic and Protestant churches about art and music. They thought that art existed for a moral purpose. And that art could share timeless truths. That it was there to convince and edify people. With my students, I find that this is not how they view art and music. For most of my students, it is a passing form of entertainment to be left behind if it's not interesting in the moment. And I think that's one important distinction that's helpful as we look at Bach. Now, music can convey some things really clearly and others not as well. But the things that I think get through best in music about longing, a sense of longing, a sense of sadness or joy, and I think through Bach we can find some of these. So I'm gonna dive in, I'll get going. If there are questions along the way, please stop me, um, and I'll try to leave some time for questions at the end as well. Uh, I wanna give you one example of a work by Bach that he wrote for choir and orchestra. It would, have been in, it would have been used in a church service in 1731 in late November. Um, it would have preceded the sermon, and it would have been on the same text as the sermon. So right before the sermon, we hear the cantata, and then we hear the sermon, and these two things sort of feed off each other. Um, it's the second movement of his, his work entitled Sleepers Awake, or Vakatav, which means like literally, wake up. And he's saying to his congregation, wake up, Christ is coming. The parable is Matthew 25, and we have the parable of the ten virgins who are, have their lamps trimmed and eagerly waiting for the bridegroom, and ten that are not. And the parable is yeah, about us eagerly waiting. And it's interesting because when I first heard this, it really struck me that I... I was not really eagerly waiting for Christ coming again. Maybe there was something abstract about the idea of him coming again, but I just had moments where I was just like, I don't sense this longing that I hear from Bach. And so I listened, and I just think through the music, I began to have a sharper understanding of this. Now, Bach knew longing for Christ coming like none of us. Um, well, maybe like some of us, but in a really acute way. He was an orphan at the age of 10. Um, his first wife died when he was away on a trip, and when he returned, she had already been buried. Um, 
He lost 10 of his 20 children before the age of three. And it turns out that his story was not unique for Leipzig, Germany in the 1700s. So he was preaching about a longing that his, his congregation knew well. Bach longed for the saving hand of God. The second movement, there's this beautiful trio between a violin, a soprano, and a bass. The soprano is us and the bass is God. And the soprano asks, where are you, God? And the sense of longing for God's presence is palpable. The bass responds, I am here. I am coming. And the soprano asks again and again, where are you, God? And the bass says, I come. I come now, my own. And the whole time, the violin just weaves between the two lines, just amplifying the sense of longing. It's just a gorgeous moment. Or take, for example, the famous alto aria from Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, which would have been performed in his church on, in 1727 on Good Friday. This alto aria, Ibarma Dich, which <coughs> prays for God's mercy. It's the story of Peter's solitary confession to God in the garden after he's denied Jesus. Um, and it's set in a lilting 12-8 time. And the, the translation of the German is, uh, Have mercy on me, O God, for the sake of my tears. See here before you, heart and eyes weep bitterly. Have mercy on me, O God. I'm going to try a little recording of this and just see if maybe we can get a sense of, of this particular moment.
has um, started, uh, the Netherlands Bach Society has started a campaign called All of Bach. It is their goal to record every last known work of Johann Sebastian Bach with high quality video um, on period instruments and the recordings are just remarkable. They find that great way of using both period instruments but not sacrificing the, the expression of the music. So they're really remarkable. Um, I could go on for a long time with recording, so I need to shorten myself just a little bit. Another one, a great example, a new come der Heider Highland is uh, translated, now come, savior of the nations. And the, the cantata, which would have been done in November in uh, 17, I believe 17. Um, and Bach, Bach writes this with a French overture style at the beginning. So French overture style would have been used for the entrance of the king of France when they entered in at the uh, beginning of an opera. So it's on Christ the King Sunday, um, and he uses this French overture at the beginning, and he's saying, now come, Savior of the nation, which is this really clever cueing off to Christ the King. Um, but then it, in this time where, where the emphasis is on the saving of the church and the church as a whole, he takes us from this Christ the King to this moment in the second to last moment where a bass sings over plucking strings. Um, I stand at the door and knock. And we have this picture of Christ standing at the door and the, the string sounding almost like the plucking or the knocking on the door. And then the final movement, um, and it's, it always strikes me as amazing because in the church at the time, um, there was a, a revival of this pietist movement where people wanted to, um, they wanted to believe that it was more about personal faith, about Christ um, being known by me, me having my faith in Christ. And that was sort of pushing against some of the headwinds that were there. And so Bach throws this really personal confession in the middle. And I have to believe some of the Orthodox among him were uncomfortable with how personal this faith is lived out here. But this moment here in this, uh, the soprano sings, Open now my heart, O God. Open and come in. Um, it's just a beautiful moment.
ecstatic in the way he's bringing this music before a church. And I think because of the music, the concept of this Savior who comes to me personally, who knocks on the door of my heart and enters in, I think that the theological principle maybe could penetrate the congregation better in that way. Uh, exuberant joy, yeah, yes, he could do that as well. It's not just the saddest stuff. So the Virdanken is, we thank you, O God. And this is another cantata that was performed in the summer. start saving money so that when I die they can play the music at my funeral. It'll be the best way to go out. Um, uh, so Bach wrote this music. Uh, music like this for every Sunday of the calendar year for five years. Um, a cantata for every Sunday. Now unfortunately approximately two years worth of the music just have been lost. They were kindling or who knows what happened with them. But uh, but we have three cycles of church music for every season part of the church year. Um, and they're profound works that were done by a wonderful composer. Which leads me to the next thing. So in 2019, the BBC asked 174 of the world's best known living composers. They asked them to put forth a list of the top five composers ever. And the, the strict criteria they had were it had to be they had to have originality, impact, craftsmanship, and finally sheer enjoyability. And you could guess it, topping the poll, Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, the New York Times did a composer survey, and the similar results came back. Bach lists the top of the charts. He composed over a thousand compositions, and as a good friend of mine from church said, there just isn't a single clunker in the whole thing. There's just not one of the thousand where you come upon it and you're like, well, that just wasn't his best. And 75% of what he wrote was for a church service. So where's the one place that you'll never hear Bob? Well, church. I mean, <laughs> church. And even, I, I have to admit, even in school, uh, it, it's not always easy to encounter and to come across Bach. Um, and there's reasons we'll go into a little bit, but Jeremy, uh, well, we know Bach primarily as the composer of the cello suites. As a matter of fact, if you Google that cello song, Bach's cello suite number one comes up. Um, 
so Brandenburg concertos, right? But rarely do we hear of his church music, the music that was written and intended for church worship. And he had an extensive library, uh, the theological library. Yes, sir. Um, what percentage of his work used words? And if they use words, how do you give that to the kids to know what they're singing? Do they make like little words that run at the bottom? You know? Yeah, so you're, you're asking great questions. And if it's okay, I want to, at the end, really dig into, like, how can we do this? Because I, I would acknowledge right up front there are some really structurally difficult things about bringing Bach to kids. For instance, that first one that we listened to had a male uh, alto. <laughs> I would never show that video to my uh, teenagers at school because they would just be, they would be lost completely in the moment. It, I only chose it because it's the best recording, I think, and I knew you guys could handle it. I didn't hear any snickering, so nice. <laughs> um, so is it okay if I come back to that question? It's a really good one. Uh, Jeremy Begbie, professor uh, from Duke and Cambridge, uh, a theology professor from Duke and Cambridge University, says, one thing that we can learn through the music of Bach is that music and language together can do things that neither can do separately. Music sometimes surpasses language, whether written or spoken, in its capacity to penetrate the innermost recesses of our consciousness and to chip away at people's prejudices and our sometimes toxic patterns of thinking. We can turn to Bach's compositions for enlightenment about sin, redemption, evil, and repentance. So Bach was a church music director who worked tirelessly in a few small towns in Germany in the 1700s. What I love about Bach, not only did he create beautiful music, not only did he shape the world's musical thought for three centuries, not only did he create some of the most profound and significant church worship music ever, it's how he did it. He wasn't even trying to do this to leave a lasting musical legacy. He was just getting music ready for Sunday. And his mission was clear. He wrote it right across the top of every piece. Soli Deo Gloria. He could have chosen to make a comfortable living, recycling old music. Um, music, music writer for the New York Times, Alex Ross, says... And as far as I can tell, Alex Ross is not a Christian. He writes this. Instead, in a kind of creative rage, Bach experimented with every aspect of musical form, creating a benchmark mark for how music can serve as an eloquent meditation on today's gospel reading. <laughs> he refused to take the easy option of reworking older pieces. It amounted to an extraordinary scriptural exegesis and social commentary. He would have no clue that his music would be known even a few years after he died. He made no attempts to publish his music for sale. He made no provisions for his music to be saved. Some scholars believe that over a thousand of Bach's works were lost. And that what we now have represents half of his compositional output. That makes me a little angry at him, but... <laughs> so you might ask, if all this is true, why don't we do it? Well, there's some reasons. But let's, let's look at this. 
box music was intended to be in church. And I think one of the reasons we don't hear it in concert halls is a lot of this music doesn't have a happy setting outside of the church. Um, it was meant to come right before the sermon. It was meant to come right after the scripture reading. But if you go to the Grand Rapids Symphony, they are a wonderful organization. They're not going to do the scripture reading right before the cantata. And they're not going to preach a sermon right after the cantata. And so when the cantata ends, and you know, if you, if you think if you're going to program, if you're a symphony and you're going to program a cantata um, with a choir and an orchestra, it's going to be expensive. This better be our closer. And if you put a Bach cantata as a closer on a concert, it's leading to something else. It's not meant to be the end. It's meant to say, and now hear this word from our pastor. Um, I just don't think it has an easy home in a lot of places. One place where it's found a little bit of a home is in the universities, because university scholars know that this is the greatest music ever. The funny thing is that in the universities, in many places, it's hard to find a place where they hold up his theological understandings as something notable and good. Instead, it's sort of an evidence that he was a provincial guy from a little town in Germany, and he didn't get out. He wasn't cosmopolitan enough. And so to find a home for Bach's music, I think its rightful home is in the church. There are challenges. There are challenges to this. Uh, the text was written in German, and few of us speak German fluently. Kyle here does a bit. Everyone, every year Kyle does a lesson for his orchestra students all in German. It's beautiful. My kid is one of my kids' favorite days. Um, there are English translations out there, but let me just say that they don't sit at the top of J.W. Pepper's, Pepper's sales. Um, and his music is challenging to sing. So maybe let me give you a couple suggestions, and then uh, what I'd really like to do is, because I think your brains can help us think of other ways that we can do this, maybe even better than mine. So first, I, I love what Gary Schmidt had to say today, because... I think a big part of me being able to share something like Bach starts with me saying, wow, this is really amazing. And when I come to my kids with a wow, I think they can sense it in me. So I would not go out and try to do this right away if you haven't already found that sense of wow with Bach. I would just say, find the Netherlands Bach Society recordings or whatever are your favorite and just spend some time listening. They are great as devotional material. Um, for quiet devotional time, if, if you'd like a list, I'll send you a list of some recordings that are great. I listed the ones that we listened to today. But just spend some time. Allow yourself to absorb it. Just remember that box music, I don't think it's going to hit you best on the first listen. I remember when I sang uh, a, Bach, a portion of a Bach cantata in choir in college. It was about three rehearsals before the performance that a light went on. And I was just like, oh, I get this. And I was a college music major. So some of these things just take a little while for us to, to sit with them. And I think they're meant to be that way. Um, find a live performance. Um, music, even these recordings, they're sort of pale. One thing I think that the pandemic has taught me 
is that even the best live recording is a pale imitation of the real thing. So try to find Bach live somewhere. And I happen to know that in November, the Holland Bach Society is doing um, uh, some of Bach's cantatas, the Nuncom der Heide Highland, in uh, local churches, three local churches. So come check us out. We're doing this every November for the foreseeable future. And we're putting it right in the middle of the worship service, right before the sermon. Um, maybe you just want to start with any Bach piece that you already love and use that as a vehicle to talk about who Bach was. Because sometimes creating intrigue in the composer can be the access to the music. So um, it doesn't have to be as music that was for church. If you um, bassoonists have long loved box cello suites, um, saxophonists play box cello suites. Um, they're just great pieces. So if there's, a, a, if there's some access point you have to Bach, um, if you learn to play a Bach um, invention for two hands on the piano, you can share that. Live is always better, uh, which is why Kyle's going to play for us in just a little bit. Um, live is always better, but even a recording with the right introduction. But if you can introduce us to this man and who he was and the job that he did, I think you'll, you'll help kids. So start with something that you already know and love. And, and then the last thing is play or sing a Bach chorale. Those are sort of easy access points. This is kind of sad because I was, after, uh, after college, uh, more than 10 years into music teaching, that I actually realized that those Bach chorales were part of cantatas that were part of church worship services. And I had been playing Bach chorales since I was in high school. Almost every day as a warm-up, we had played through a different Bach chorale. And not, I had a wonderful music teacher, but not once did I find out what those were from and what they were. So maybe that's a great starting point. If you use chorales as a warm-up, and if you find a good, you know, a Bach, there's an O Sacred Head Now Wounded is a great entry point for high school students. The way the lines weave through each other, and it's a great moment just to talk to kids about who this man was and what he composed. Other ideas? What are ways that you have maybe introduced Bach to your students or um, to other people or ways that you can imagine using Bach in a classroom? You want to turn the lights yes. back up? There, yeah. That's great. And that, what I love is, because you, you don't have to introduce them to the whole three cycles of cantatas of Bach. Uh, getting the name in their ear and maybe creating a little bit of interest. I mean, I'm a great example. I graduated from high school. If you'd asked senior Scott Vandenberg if he liked Bach, I would have said no. There's, he doesn't use trumpets loud enough. <laughs> so 
I think it, I, that's great because I think if you light that spark, then I hopefully inspire that lifelong learning. They can find it, you know, like I did. Others? I'm trying to look for it right now, and I don't remember that, but the BBC over yeah. in So, yeah, Brian. You know, I was just thinking about that when you mentioned that. It's like, <clears throat> speaking of wasting time on YouTube or whatever, it's like, if you, if you like, some of the, they do those visualizations of some of those views on, yeah. online, I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Yeah. They're kind of cool, and if you can't hear it, you know, orally, sometimes when they do, you know, I'm talking about they've got like, yeah, they do the color coded. Sacred Head now wounded in the season of Lent, and then we talk about the text. Um, um, when Bach looked at Advent, um, which is you know coming, he he looked at Advent as a penitential season in the same way that we look at Lent as a penitential season. So, um, and sometimes the. Sometimes he wouldn't write music during Lent because sometimes the churches would go silent for instruments until Christmas Day. Um, but if you do find a, an Advent cantata, they're usually like right around Christ the King. They're really great in this sense of longing for Christ to come again. And that is one of the most profound things I think I've found in Bach is like that sense of Christ's longing for his coming. And those Advent cantatas like we listen to here are just great for that. Others? So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It, sometimes it's just having it on when they come in. Especially if it's a, a, a rainy day where you can get them to come in quiet enough that they'll listen. Um, and then some kid might even ask what's on. I love that. That's a great way to go about that. Um, so a couple days ago I said to Kyle, um, I said, hey, how about some Bach on Thursday? And he said, yes. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, He's going to play a little bit from Bach's uh, second partita, not the Chaconne, uh, but from the, the Allemande, uh, which is right at the beginning of the set. Now, this partita number two is normal in the sense that it has an Allemande, a Corant, a Sarabande, and a G, uh, but it's different in that it's in the minor key, 
And then it's also different in that all those first movements, they really tilt towards the last one, which is this really profound chaconne. And the story, which I'm not sure if it's true, but it's still, it's a good story. If you ever want to play the chaconne, so Bach's uh, first wife died um, in 1720 um, while he was away uh, doing work with the person that he was working for. And then she was buried when he came back because he had been gone too long and he couldn't get word to him. So he returns to his home and is greeted by his own children who tell him about his wife passing away um, at the door. And he writes just a little bit about this, but this is the same year that he writes this Chaconne in a minor key. Um, and here is the Alamo from box partita number two.
uh, you know, box music is beautiful. Actually, the partitas and the cello suites are great background music for study. Or uh, so all of the cello suites are amazing, and all of the violin partitas as well. Um, they're great works. Uh, as you, uh, as we wrap up today, I'm going to play a little bit from his cantato Vacatau, which I think um, some of these are familiar. Uh, Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring is familiar. This one is also. Um, and it's a chorale that um, actually our orchestra is going to play uh, this year because um, the violin lines are really doable and uh, um, the cello bass line is really doable. And then you just have to figure out there's a tenor part. Um, and they sing, you could have a, a soprano or a tenor sing it in English, probably preferably, or you could just put like a, a C instrument, like a flute or an oboe on the tenor line. Um, but it's just a beautiful, a beautiful work, and maybe just a little bit familiar. I remember the first time I did this one in a church service. People got to this, and you could see the, the faces light up. They're just like, "Oh, I recognize that."
continue to pass on to future generations the music of Bach, uh, whether it just be for personal use, um, whether it be for your own devotional use, or maybe even something that we can pass on to our students and our children, um, so that his words, um, and really the gospel's words through Bach, can you continue to speak for generations. Uh, thank you for coming today.